0: Welcome to the second episode of the Building Blocks podcast. Today, I'm joined by my good friend and occupational therapist, Meg Long. Meg, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Thank you for having me on. My name is Margaret Long. I go by Meg, and I'm an occupational therapist. Um, And I've been working in public schools for pretty much my whole career as an OT. I just love the, the setting and I like um, helping kids with their functional skills. Excellent. Thank you. And now you've been in one district for a good amount of time. What
0: other past experience have you had?
1: I've, as uh, in public schools, I've worked in two different districts. I worked in one district for 10 years and then ended up moving into the district. That's the same as where I live, which was a little, I was a little unsure about that because there's a little bit of crossover in my worlds. But when I moved into the second district, I started doing uh, more work in functional life skills programs and realized that that's kind of where my heart is, is working with children with severe, um, moderate to severe um, disabilities.
0: That's great. And I think that's why we've bonded and have had such a great working relationship is because my heart is right there as well, working with students who have moderate to severe disabilities is really where my focus lies. Now I am interested in learning about um, your role in regards to doing observations and determining appropriate placement for students when they are first entering a district.
1: Um, since I work in a district program that um, supports children with severe to moderate disabilities all through the city, but they're just come to our one school. If a student in coming into public schools um, is kind of flagged as possibly a good candidate for this program because they need, would need more support than um, a resource room level classroom then our team will often, members of our team, OTPT, speech, and special ed might go observe the student in their setting and try to get a sense of if they're a good fit for that level of support. Right.
0: Yeah. And then after the observation, there'll often be an IEP team meeting, um, team members from the new district, team members from the old district, the family will often meet
1: yeah yeah. and and that happens also when kids are moving into the district from other schools. um, and you know it's it's always a tense time for families and for teams. Um, we because we're a team that's based in one building, but we sometimes support kids who live in other neighborhood schools. Um, Then there's also a secondary team, their homeschools team, which are often feeling kind of nervous about taking a student who's even been red flagged for a functional life skills program. So there can be kind of multiple levels of conversation going on while we try to make, create a good fit for the student based on how much support they need and what kind of um, skills they're bringing into um, school already.
0: Right. And that can be, I mean, intimidating for the team, but certainly intimidating for the family, especially families coming in from CDS who have never had an IEP meeting, especially with this capacity, um, that amount of people.
1: Yeah. And I think... um... Our team is very focused on mainstreaming and making sure students have opportunities, regardless of their functional level, to participate in mainstreaming activities and not be just kind of closed away into a a classroom of just special ed students. So what we consider a functional life skills classroom can look very different than other school districts. And we're really trying to make sure kids are getting into their their grade level mainstream classrooms as much as possible and participating in the ways that they can. And so sometimes we have students coming from other districts who never leave their special ed classroom. Um, So the family is, is pretty uncertain about what that might look like. In our district when we do so much more mainstreaming. Right.
0: And I remember we had an instance in the past where a student was coming in from a program had never mainstreamed and was coming into a program who is very much one for inclusion and pushing into Mm -hmm. the mainstream as much as possible. And again, having that meeting and bringing that up with the family can cause a lot of anxiety because they're thinking we're going to just push them in and not offer support. But Right, you know, certainly not the case, but I think uh, communication and explaining the program, the differences, and and how we're going to support, right, the student is so important. Right.
1: And I think we always err on the side of more inclusion versus less. I mean, when when people start asking questions like, "Well, what's the kid getting out of it?" or "Is the kid disrupting the mainstream peers?", we're we're very quick to kind of argue that you know. Participating with their peers is always valuable and all kids can be distracting to other kids learning. And we don't use those as excuses to keep a kid into, in a special ed setting. And I know we've also talked in the past
0: and in my first episode uh, with Alicia, we talked a lot about how students in a functional life skills setting will go into mainstream and it's also a learning opportunity for they're typically developing peers um, as well. You know, it's hard when there's a district program and all students go to one school, because then there's a whole slew of other elementary schools who don't
1: have any access to students with moderate peer disabilities. Right. And our students, if let's say their home school is on the other side of town, well, their peers are at the school they're attending. Um, but they don't have those neighborhood connections. So that's another kind of place where they're not getting that kind of double benefit that kids who are in their homeschool and getting special support in their homeschool get their, see their peers in their community and their, see them in the school when our students are kind of having to, the kids they're seeing in their community might not be the same kids they're seeing at school. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough.
0: Yeah. Oh, I think that's also where, you know, working in the community and getting out in the community also comes into play. You know, if students are going to have to go to this one school, at least giving them the opportunity to get out into the community to maybe have more opportunities to see, you know, even adults or peers in that setting is so important.
1: Um, Right. I would agree. I mean, the um, you and I have worked together on getting kids into the community and um, have done kind of a shopping-based activity where they're going into their local um, grocery store and having a list and they're picking out items. And then we take the items back and we make something and trying to make sure that when we're doing those things, we're using the ingredients that are more likely our, that our students would be buying um, and we're using kind of a variety of foods and then sending that information home so families can recreate it and going to a typical store that they would go to. I mean, no offense, but we're not taking them to Whole Foods because we're not sure that that's the store our kids would be going to. They might more likely be walking to a neighborhood grocery store. Right, right.
0: What are some other places in the community that you've found beneficial for students, um, not only for elementary age, but getting into like middle and high school as well?
1: Yeah, so I've also worked with functional life skills students in the high school setting and in our district, we have a really close community um, connection to a lot of work sites and job sites so that kids, once they kind of get into about 10th grade, they start to rotate through different job sites um, and sometimes it's been like going into a restaurant and they've been maybe clearing off tables and stacking chairs, prepping a restaurant. We've gone to the library and done some cleaning of books. Um, we've gone to nursing homes and doing setup of games for students. But the the action of kind of even just going in and out of a building and what's the appropriate behavior? How do we greet people? And then the kind of OT kind of functional side of an activity of the experience is really what activity are they engaged in and how much can they work a student can work on their own without getting prompts so there's so many different things that going into a community setting can really hit on that are social that are functional skills Um, you can pull in academics language for sure and then familiarity with things in their environment and often seeing people that they know and uh, recognizing people and then maybe even going back there, you know, in a personal time with their family. So yeah, that community involvement is uh, is really key. And I think our families then find out too, like, oh, you, we feel comfortable bringing, your kid into this setting and here's how here's a picture of what we did here's how we made this activity accessible to your students so that they're you know enjoying and participating and maybe then going home and making a quesadilla as well just like we did at school yeah unfortunately that's
0: one of the things that covid is is not allowing us to
1: yeah yeah to we, practice
0: at this point
1: yeah it's a it's a big missing opportunity right now it'll be great to kind of get back to yep absolutely and
0: times like that going into the community or even planning for students in school I think it's so important in my experience of just meeting as a team and having those conversations around planning right I mean I think I'm a wonderful teacher and I can do OT and I can bring in speech but you know that's that's what you do. You know, and yeah, I love yeah. having your professional information, your professional guidance into how we can make these these trips more meaningful in an OT way. And again, right. for speech and PT and so forth. Um, and I know that we've both worked in a couple of different teams at this point. Um, what are some things when it comes to working in an IEP team? or maybe just a school setting team that you think work well and work well to support a family and maybe some things that you've seen that don't work so well and could potentially cause some um, maybe mistrust or, you know, reasons for families to maybe go into meetings feeling like they're not being supported. Is there anything that you see from a team standpoint?
1: I think I'm always trying to kind of figure that out because I do think that our the teams that you and I have been on Amy have been highly successful in terms of having parent um, satisfaction being really high Um, I've been on many other teams where there's often um, such a high level of distrust between the family and the team that you end up having advocates and lawyers involved so I'm still trying to kind of figure out what it is that, um, the teams we've been on have are doing right. <laughs> um, I think one thing is there's a lot of team communication. Um, there's, there's a lot in the teams that have been successful. There's just this kind of overall overarching, um, kind of advocacy for the student and seeing that, you know, the students needs really are top priority. Um, and then I think communication with the family is has been very clear um, and, and an expectation that this is going to work. When a family is coming into our program and has some of those red flags, it, I, it always feels like we manage to smooth that out. We often provide information to families before IEP meetings. It's very clear what the meeting is going to be about what we think some options might be discussed at the meeting. We often have um, reports prepared for families before the meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I I don't really know what exactly it is. I, you know, there's, there's probably a book on it, (laughs) (laughs) but it seems like we keep kind of getting it right when we've been on these teams together and that's, Mm -hmm. it's just so comforting. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think um, communication
0: is, is huge. And I, I've said before, there have certainly been meetings that have been uncomfortable, and I think I have learned from that in regards to communication and some things. If we're planning on, you know, offering or suggesting a huge change, then maybe it is communicated beforehand so that we can go into the meeting with everyone knowing what's going to be discussed and everyone can have their talking points ready. Right. Sometimes it can be uncomfortable, but again, it's, it's all about the student, right? So if we're thinking this is what should be done, then we just need to express how we're feeling and have that conversation, whether or not it's something that the whole team agrees upon is, is neither here nor there. But I think the importance of that communication and being open um, with everybody involved, parents, admin, whoever's coming to the meeting is, is so important.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think getting um, support from your administrators is is hugely important. And I think honestly, that might be part of the reason why sometimes our team has worked so well is because um, that's been a struggle at times. And so you know we've we may reach out to administrators and don't feel like we get exactly the support we're looking for. And so we kind of self supported through a lot of things and um, ended up having to be strong advocates for what we needed as a team. Yep. Yeah,
0: I think I, uh, I, can, I can envision, you know, maybe conversations being had after the fact about having administrators having to deal with this difficult team. But I think it's just because we were so focused on advocating for our students that we didn't let anything Right. Kind of get past what we felt was necessary and also what the families felt were necessary. Um, Especially in the district that we've worked in, there's been so many families from different cultures and ELL backgrounds. So making sure that they have the support. And then if they maybe don't have all of the information, like where that second round or first round, however you want to look at it, of advocacy for those families.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're also very careful as a team to um, be equitable about how much energy, time, support that those decisions we make about um, how we support families and students is not based on the squeakiest families um, or the most involved students. We see that every student deserves the same amount of support and advocacy and sometimes more or less based on where they are in their kind of trajectory of learning or some students mm-hmm. have you know times where they need um, a lot more support a lot more professionals involved and then later on another you know, student might need more and sometimes it seems like everybody needs a whole lot all at once which can right. be really intense um. <laughs> yeah it yeah. can be hard <laughs> Yeah, I just I think other teams I sometimes think other teams are so focused on um, not upsetting specific families that they may kind of miss the bigger picture and um, let things slide for students who are equally as needy. Right. Or accommodations can be made for one student to make a family
0: happen when it won't even be brought up for another student because the family doesn't know how to advocate or they just don't know that they can ask for certain things. Yes. So exactly. I think being mindful and equitable about all of the families that you're working with, if you're offering it for one student and it could benefit another, make sure you're also making that recommendation for that. Right,
1: right. and if it's above and beyond and um, or redundant or um, unnecessary because for whatever reason, sometimes we might, you know, ask families to put aside that request because we're already doing it this other way. Right.
0: Yep. Oh, It's a tricky, <laughs> tricky thing. I've just heard. And, and again, I think my reasoning for wanting to do this podcast is just to have conversations about how to strengthen those relationships mm-hmm. with all of the reading that I've done and, you know, message boards that I've been in. I, just hate to see how often families are going into IEPs or prepping for IEPs. Like, I'm going into it. I'm ready for a fight. You know, I my goal as a teacher, I think, is just to have my families never feel that way. Um, And then again, my goal for this podcast is to maybe inform other teachers or OTs, other IEP teams and families, how we can communicate to make that not be yeah. The hardest part of their, right. year, you know. Yeah.
1: And I think there are also times where how you set up the meeting makes a difference. Um, how you establish the agenda, mm-hmm. who is running the meeting. When you start a meeting and there's two people talk to you know, an admin and a SPED teacher, or two admin kind of almost arguing about who's running the meeting, that sets a tone. Right. Or if you start a meeting and you see Sometimes, you know, you'll provide an agenda, which is great. Everybody, that helps everybody. But if the last thing on the agenda says parent concern, that gives some information to the family, too, about their priorities. Right. Um, and I think it's like, oh, we don't want to forget to write down your concerns. But usually parents have given concerns throughout or start with the parents' concerns. Like, tell us, you know, like, let's hear from you first. And on that note, too, where do you... and Talk about mainstreaming teachers' concerns, um, the regular classroom teachers' concerns or input, and how are they involved or not involved in the IEP meetings and IEP process. Right. And that makes a huge difference as well. When a mainstream teacher says, Well, I don't even see that student, um, so I'm not going to attend the meeting, or they come in for snack is like the only information that the teacher wants to provide. Right. It gives the family a lot of information. Um, that the student's not really a valued part of the classroom. Right. Absolutely. I read something
0: recently that was talking about how a student in school, their first and first line is their mainstream teacher. And then after that is special education, which I see and I, I completely agree with. I do agree and feel that with functional life skills, it is a little bit different in regards to we are in communication with families on a daily basis, just because there is so much involved in their students. However, again, with communication, I think it's so important to be constantly communicating with their mainstream gen ed teachers to make sure that they are a part of the planning and the accommodations and they know what's happening and they know what goals they're working on. So when they do go into their classroom, they are working on a certain set of goals, and when they go into the IEP meeting, they can say, "These are the goals we're working on in mainstream. Right. They're also being worked on other times, but this is what I'm seeing." Um, and again, I think that's kind of across the board in a few districts that I've I've worked in, um, where that bond between special ed and mainstream are. It's right. not- it's not the best. Um, right? Um, I feel like we could have a whole episode on how we can support that connection and relationship right. as well. Right. It is the law for a student to have a mainstream teacher and they are required to be invited and attend an IEP meeting. Ideally they would come for the whole meeting because if they don't, they're going to miss all of the accommodations and everything that's discussed. And part of that is, accommodations that happen in their classroom.
1: Right. Right.
0: Again, a whole, a whole
1: other, (laughs) other, other day. (laughs) And I think even unknowingly or on not intending to, we sometimes exclude mainstream teachers. I mean, we frequently have meetings. We may have two or three meetings on the student Um, a week or in over the course of a couple weeks. And we often do not include the mainstream teacher um, because they're part of, it's part of our regular schedule to have meetings, to have discussions. So even a very involved and willing mainstream teacher is often on the sideline of all of those conversations. Um, Yeah, they're busy. So that's a growth area for us as well, I think. Yep. I mean,
0: mainstream gen ed teachers are extremely busy who has extra time to like throw in all of these other meetings. Right. But in regards to that level of support that they could be getting, you know, I do, I do think it's coming from admin, right? If their administration is not saying that this is a priority for the school, then maybe it's not going to be a priority for the teachers and that's special ed and jet ed alike.
1: Right. Right.
0: We need to put in the work, I think, to just to, to strengthen that relationship.
1: Yeah. And it starts before school starts. It starts with making sure a student has a locker or a cubby. It starts with students being added to mainstream teachers' class roster and attendance. And it starts with the, the schedule of the student going into that classroom as much as possible. Right. Um, and if you have any of those things are not in place you're likely to spend the year trying to battle to get those things put into place. Um, So the more that's set up before kids show up, the more natural routine is already going to be you know, ready for inclusion. Right. Oh, All
0: right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one. I think it's all tough. It's, you know, it's hard to Hard to figure it out, which is, I think, why there are so many issues in the special education realm of things. Um, but that's why we're here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so,
0: yeah. One more thing um, that we had on our list to talk about was how we support families with coming into the district. I know we talked a little bit about this before. Um, But one thing that I've noticed from district to district, you know, many schools or districts have a functional life skills classroom. Many are starting to have autism programs. Um, There's out of district placement. There's resource room. Some have functional academics. So when you're moving, families move from one district to the other. These classrooms all have different names. They all have different, you know, ways to be put into these programs, which I think is so confusing for families. It's also very confusing for staff and for the students coming in. (laughs) We will often look at their LRE to see what percentage they're at, and put them in a placement that we think maybe is appropriate with another program that we have. But then that student comes into the school. We find that either they need much more restrictive or much, a much less restrictive setting. And there, I feel like there's a year of just this juggle of trying to figure out where the student should go. When, if there was a little bit more of a uniformity across districts in their specialized programs, it would help make a little bit more sense. Right. On the flip side of that, one district from another could have FLS programming, but one FLS program could look completely different from another. It really depends on their students and what they're capable of of supporting.
1: And even the teachers, a specific Um, Functional life skills teacher may approach things one way versus another functional life skills teacher may approach it very differently. Like I've said, we work really hard at bringing kids into a mainstream setting. um, But um, teachers that I've worked with in the past have not. (laughs) So it's been an evolution of the program that you and I worked in to even get to that point. Right.
0: Yeah, it's just another layer, I think, that adds to maybe a little bit of mistrust when it comes to supporting or a little bit of mistrust when it comes to families trusting
1: the school and what they have to offer the support. Yeah, and and the resources that a program has, um... When I think of some programs we've observed students in maybe did not have the staffing to support kids outside of um, the special ed setting. And so because of that, all the kids just stayed in the special ed setting. Maybe they didn't have the staffing to support a kind of um, adapted music, art, or gym class, so... They didn't have it or, you know, or the teacher led it instead. So staffing can become an issue and also just kind of like, what's, what's the perspective of the administrators? They set the tone. Yeah. Right. Okay. Administrators set the tone for what, um, what inclusion looks like and what mainstreaming looks like and, and what's an, what LREs look like. So if it, if it comes from above you that, well, you know, if it's in a, if a kid's in a self-contained program, why would we even consider, you know, mainstreaming them for this or that or the other thing? If, if that's coming from above you, then you're going to kind of stay within those confinements unless you have a really strong team. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, so just back to that team aspect, you know, bringing in the family I also think it has been helpful when administrators are able to come to those regular meetings just that staff are able to have. So they're also not caught off guard and we can have this rolling conversation year to year. um, Yes. You know, just to make sure everyone's getting what they need and and that the program has what they need in order to do that.
1: Yeah. And having a presence of... Um, special ed administrators, as well as building-based administrators in the program, getting to know our students and our staff. Um, it always feels a little embarrassing to sit in a meeting when you realize that, oh, the special ed administrator knows this kid only by name, does not know this kid in person at all, would not recognize a student. Yeah. Um, so I, I always appreciate when there is that in-person experience that the special ed teacher has, the special ed administrator has really gotten to know the students and the staff. Yep, absolutely.
0: So leaving off, let's think of one suggestion we can give to maybe parents going into an IEP meeting or transitioning into a district And one piece of advice for school staff IEP team members.
1: Um, Well, I've always felt like it makes a huge difference when a family can visit a program um, before they have to make some decisions about kind of what the best um, plan is for the student. Now, that's hard to do right now because of the pandemic, but we have always invited families, come come see the program, look at what this program looks like, and then look at this other classroom that's more of a resource room model. Um, and, you know, you parents know their kids, and they can either envision their kid in one program or the other, right. and they're the expert on those kids. And so I think giving them that, you know, enough information to help the team make a decision because otherwise it's really just like, oh yeah, well we do this and we do this, but mainstream, you know, a resource room does this, does this, does this. It's just, it's just a list of things. And sometimes families will then take that one step further and kind of want a menu. Well, then what else do you have? (laughs) What other programs do you have? What about an out of district placement? You know, so getting a family to come in and see students that are maybe similar to their own child or maybe very dissimilar to their own child and seeing those differences in person, I think is, is really valuable um, yeah. and for I the kids. Also
0: having for the-
1: an opportunity for
0: their student to come to and give them that time yes. to interact with students in each setting, you know, you'll get a gauge pretty quickly on whether they're, you know, jumping in and doing the same sorts of activities as one group of students, or if they get into a classroom and they're, completely blown away because they're just not at that level um, right right support right yeah Well, I think that was great, your
1: second question
0: well I think that was a great uh, piece of advice for both families and schools one families to yes. ask for that also for schools to offer that and to make sure if they yeah. are offering it to offer it to everybody schools can as well but anytime yes they need to you could have one once a month not that we you know we certainly hope that we don't have to have a full-on IEP meeting once a month but if if that's what needs to happen then yeah it, that can happen so
1: yeah and sometimes I have been in situations as well where the meetings are happening pretty much monthly until there's enough trust built mm-hmm. yep and if
0: that's what's needed What we'll do. Well, Meg, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. And um, I'm thinking once we get into the OT realm of things, I'll probably have you back on. Yeah, I
1: love to talk about functional skills. Woo!
0: (laughs) You know, I still, it always blows my mind when I'm watching Meg teach a student how to tie their shoes. And she is just able to move her hands and fingers
1: in ways that I just cannot. (laughs) Oh, you could if it was what you were focused on every day. (laughs) But yeah, it's fun. It's fun to watch kids make growth and some of those skills that they're going to have for the rest of their life. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. All
0: right. Well, Meg, thank you so much. Again, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate talking to you and I always enjoy hearing, you know, your side of things. I've always felt like I can come to you anytime I (laughs) am on a, a roll with something and I may be a little irrational and I come up with these crazy ideas and you you bring me back down to earth and
1: well, I think we do. We work together that we work together well that way. And uh, you can still reach out for me, even though uh, we may not be working together all the time. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you. And I guess we'll say goodbye and we'll see you next time. Bye.